Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. As you do so, I want to again invite you to come back this evening for our, our Sunday evening service. It's always a, a great joy to be able to get together together on a Sunday evening. If you're newer to our church, uh, this is a great way to, to get to know people a little bit better, just to spend some time together on a Sunday evening. On Sunday evenings, we, we spend time praying, we spend time singing, we spend time uh, teaching, and we kind of each month kind of we're going to do all three of those things each month, but we kind of shift our focus on which we spend the most time on each month. Some months we're going to spend a little more time praying, sometimes a little more time singing, and then uh, some months, like this month, we're going to spend a little bit more time teaching. And tonight I'm going to begin a new series, and here's kind of a quiz uh, to, to help you know what we're going to be talking about. Um, what generation is known as, the, uh, as America's middle child? generation. It's the greatest generation, Generation X. No, it's not the greatest generation at all, really, but it's the America's, it's, it's the um, millennial boomer, it's a meat in the millennial boomer sandwich is another way to describe the Gen X generation. And we're not talking about the people that are part of the Gen X, the Gen X generation, but we're talking about some things that happened in the church over the last 50 years. We're calling the series Gen X Church we're going to talk about some, some major things that have happened in the church over the last 50 years, major movements, and the, the good and bad things about some of those movements. So the, we'll talk about things like the attractional church, the postmodern church, the dispensational church, the political church, the young, restless, and reformed church, kind of some five big movements that have happened. And so tonight, we'll be talking about the attractional church model and, and how that's affected how we think about the church and even our spiritual lives, and I'm excited to talk about that with you this evening. So come back, be a part of that. Also a family meeting where we'll be talking about just an update on the budget and some membership things. Uh, should be a great time of fellowship as we spend the Lord's Day together today. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Remember we've, we've talked about those coming to David, and, and David was at the cave of Adullam, and then he leaves and departs in the forest of Hereth. And now we, we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through the end of chapter 22, and then also some other parts of chapters 23, 24, 27 this morning. Uh, sorry, sorry, 22, 23, 24, and 26, and then we'll come back and look at chapter 25 uh, next week, Lord willing, as we kind of do this overview of 1 Samuel. So if you're able to, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. We're going to see Saul's response to David. It says in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 22, Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make, all your, all, make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that you all have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. 
Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he's risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword. Both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doug the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. You may be seated. May God encourage, strengthen his people through the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, you are the God who knows all things. You know the, the end from the beginning, from before the beginning, and we trust in you today. Lord, Protect us from the, the sin of, of self-pity and help us to, to trust in you, to rely upon you, to, to know that you are a good God who does good things even in hard circumstances. Help us to worship you and to re reflect our, our love for you and our response to, to all circumstances. Protect us and grow us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we're, we're talking this morning about the sin of self-pity and its fruit. And the sin of self-pity is a sin that is sometimes very easy to see in other people and very difficult to see in ourselves. So, for example, as, as a parent, uh, when I had children who were younger, it was very easy for me to see when they were suffering with the sin of self-pity. And, and those of you who are parents of younger children, we, we see this all the time, right? A, a child makes that transition from being an infant to a toddler. And as an infant, you, you kind of have this understanding that you are the center of the universe. And as you become a toddler, you are constantly grappling with this reality that you are not the center of the universe, so, for example, sometimes maybe my, my son would be playing with a toy and, and sister would decide that, that she wanted to be playing with this toy and, and she'd grab the toy and, and you could just, just see the, the look of confusion on my son's face. And, and then the confusion began to, to give way to, to self-pity. The arms cross, the lips slips out like this. What injustice. What 
a travesty of all that is good and decent in this world, right? And, and you see that, that self-pity quickly turn to, to anger. And there's retaliation, and, and I'm, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your homes, but there was there were sometimes physical altercations between brother and sister. And then as parent, I step in and begin to correct the, the child, correct my son, and, and my son is now more aghast. Like, what in the world is going on? Dad, don't you, un- Father, don't you understand what's happened here? It was my toy. It was taken from me. And I am simply trying to restore order to the universe right now. And don't you understand how terrible things are, right? And you can correct that in your children. And, and those of you who are parents of, of younger children and you struggle, it, it's, it's going to get better. Um, then they become teenagers and then they become adults. So now we're adults who struggle with self pity, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I struggle with self. It's, I can see it in my children. It's harder to see in myself. And, and I won't get, I want to be careful with the examples here because I, I, don't, I don't want anyone to think that I'm talking about you in particular or like, hey, has my wife been talking to you or something? I'll just share my own struggle with self-pity, okay? The, I call it the, the pastoral path of self-pity. And it's something I see pastors like myself struggle with. I, I, I've noticed this when I read a book by D.A. Carson many years ago called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. And he talks about his dad and how his dad, great guy, but, but would struggle with, with feeling like people weren't treating him the way that he deserved to be treated. And I kind of observed it in him and then observed it in, in myself and, and others. It's very convicting. But the process that a pastor can go through sometimes looks something like this. First of all, a, a pastor might say, well, look, look at all that I do. Right? Look, look at all the things that I do for the church, forgetting that there are a lot of people who do a lot of things for God's people, right? And then a, a pastor might think, okay, look at all that I do and look at how hard my circumstances are despite all that I do. In fact, I was reading just this, this morning, a, a friend had, had, had mentioned, his pastor had mentioned how... Um, hard pastors have it, you know, just some, some of the difficult things about being a pastor. And it was, it was a fine thing, but, but we can forget we're not, the, pastors aren't the only one who have hard circumstances, right? And then, like, the next step is, is and, and look, look at all that I do, look at how hard my circumstances are, and look at how little I'm appreciated. Focusing on maybe one or two people who didn't give us the, the thanks we thought we deserved, forgetting all the, the, the unearned thanks we get all the time, Right? And then, and then in our, our self-pity, we begin to think this. We begin to think, why, why do I even bother? Look at all that I do. Look at how hard it is. Look how little I'm appreciated. Why do I even bother? Right? Forgetting what God says, right? 1 Peter 5.4, there's an unfading crown of glory that God has promised to faithful pastors. That's why you do it, Right? The sin of self-pity is, is something that I see at times in my life, in not just my ministry, but in my family life, in ways that surprise me. And it's a sin that I think is often overlooked. I think we often overlook this, the sin of self-pity because sometimes we, it looks a lot like non-sinful attitudes, like, like genuine sorrow or, or sadness. But here's what I want us to talk about as we look at self-pity in Saul's life this morning. Here's kind of the main thing that I want to encourage us with this morning. Let's commit to this. Let's wage war 
against self-pity so that we will not experience its terrible fruit in our lives or in the life of our church. That's, that's the main thing that I want us to, to be encouraged with this morning. Let's commit together this morning as we look at the sin of self-pity. And again, maybe this is a sin you haven't thought about in your life very often, but let's, let's wage war against it, right? Let's wage war against self-pity so we will not experience its terrible fruit in, in our lives and also in the life of this church. Let's, let's commit to that together this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about the sin of self-pity first in, the, in 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 10, and then we're going to talk about the fruit of self-pity, what, what it produces in our lives and the lives of others when we engage in that sin. So first of all, let's talk about the sin of self-pity, pity, and make sure you're here in 1 Samuel chapter 22, beginning in verse 6. And as we talk about the sin of self-pity, we're going to define it, describe it, and then denounce it, okay? So first of all, let's see the sin of self-pity defined, okay? Let's define it together. Number one, the sin of self-pity defined. What, what is self-pity? I, I messed up here a little bit. Uh, this should be, number one should be defined, and number two should be described. Uh, sorry about that. Um, whoever's running the PowerPoint, you know, I, I guess they messed up. No, I'm just kidding. I messed up. <laughs> what, what is self-pity? It's not just feeling sad about our circumstances, right? Uh, lament is good. Lament is a, a good thing to do, as we talked about in January, right? Uh, self-pity, though, is when we find ourselves in a hard circumstance and, and three things happen. First of all, we turn our, our focus off of God, and then secondly, we turn the focus onto ourselves, and then thirdly, we feel excessively sorry for ourselves in that circumstance, okay? So there's three things that are happening. We're in this hard circumstance, and we turn our focus off of God, we turn the focus onto ourselves, and then we feel excessively sorry for ourselves. Here's the person running the PowerPoint, who is my son, just sent me a text. I'm feeling pity for myself right now. <laughs> it's pretty good. Shouldn't text during church, son. Um, <laughs> Abigail Dodds wrote an article, it is entitled, Woe is Me, uh, The Sin of Self-Pity and How to Be Free. And, and she defines self-pity as this, pity for ourselves, especially when we have a self-indulgent attitude toward our own hardships. Something bad happens to us, and, and we decide to, she writes, lament our loss alone, since no one else apparently will. That's self-pity. She says it's looking at our circumstances and being convinced that God is not a gracious father. It's rebellion against his providence. We're turning our focus off of him onto ourselves, and there's this excessive sorrow we have for ourselves. That's, that's kind of a definition. Now, let's go back to number one, sorry, and uh, let's, let's describe it, okay? Let's see self-pity described. Here we are in, in Saul's sandals as we begin verse 6, and it says that Saul hears something. He's there in Gibeah. He's about five kilometers away, so like less than five kilometers, less than a fun run away from where 
David has been in Nob, and, and he hears several things, apparently. He, he hears that David has been nearby, and he also somehow finds out that his son has entered into a covenant with David. And as Saul hears that here in Gibeah, in this position of authority that he has, he begins to, to feel very sorry for himself. He begins to, to, to lament and he begins to express his frustration. He looks around at all the people that are surrounding him. It's the Benjaminites, so it's people from his own tribe. He's apparently elevated them into positions of prominence, given his kinsmen these, these positions of prominence. And he looks around, and he engages in self-pity. And we say, well, how do we know he engages in self-pity? Well, notice two things. First of all, notice the way that he looks at his circumstances. Listen to how he describes the circumstances in which, he's, which he finds himself, what he focuses on. He says, look, I can give you what you want. I, I could give you land. I could give you these positions of, of authority in the army. David can't do that. And yet, look what's happening. Everybody's conspiring against me. My, my son enters into a covenant with this guy. Look at how bad my circumstances are. Now, there are some other things he might have focused on in that moment. What is he doing right now? He's holding a spear. He could have focused on, you know, things are a little bit rough right now, but, um, you know, I, I guess technically I have tried to throw a spear three times at least at my own son and David, so I can see how they're a little upset right now. That's not what he's focusing on. He's focusing on his own circumstances. And, and the other thing that we see that, that makes, makes us aware that this is self-pity, not only what he's focusing on and when a person chooses to focus on the negatives, it can tell us a lot about whether or not they're engaging in self-pity. But, but notice the second thing about self-pity is there a, there's a demand for other people to feel bad for him. He says, why don't you guys feel sorry for me? Look at, where, look at my circumstances, and now why isn't everybody upset about this? Why aren't you pitying me? Literally, the, the, the words that he uses here say, why, why is there an absence of sickness on your part for me? Why, why aren't you guys as upset about what's happening to me as I am. Saul, this is the astonishing thing, he really believes that he's the one who's been aggrieved. A reasonable person might raise their hand and say, hey, Saul, um, you know, you have been trying to kill David. Um, I know things are rough right now, but, but maybe God's trying to, to teach you something here. I mean, maybe there's some things we could change, but that's, that's not what a person who's indulging in self-pity wants to hear, is it? A person who's indulging in self-pity wants others to, to feel sorry for them as well. They want everyone else to be sick at the thought of what's happening to them as well. And, and so instead of anyone saying anything, what is there? Awkward silence. And then this terrible human being speaks up, this terrible, terrible person. It's Doeg. We've, we've seen him in chapter 21, verse 7, where the writer gives us kind of a glimpse, hey, there's a certain man of the servants of Saul that was there. His name was Doeg, the Edomite. And now he appears again in chapter 22, and he speaks up in verses 9 and 10. He says, well, I saw David. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He gave him provisions. He gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Now, 
As Doeg speaks up, he's exaggerating Ahimelech's involvement here, isn't he? He's making it look like Ahimelech was actively working with David. Now, why would he do that? Well, you know the best way to get on the good side of a person who's indulging in self-pity is not to confront them in it, but to engage in it with them. And that's what he does. Okay, so that's self-pity described and defined. Now, let's look at number three here, and let's talk about self-pity denounced in Scripture, okay? And I think it's important for us to take a few minutes here because self-pity isn't necessarily something we, we think about. I want, to, I want to talk to you about why not just the fruit of self-pity is so sinful, but why self-pity itself is a, a sinful heart attitude, okay? Now, I want to be careful. I want us to be balanced here. I want to be gentle with those of you who are hurting, right? So, this morning as we talk about self-pity, and you say, well, I, I'm in this hard circumstance, and I, I feel sad about it, and I, I feel sorry. Is that sinful? No. Feel, feeling sad, feeling lament, responding to lament is not sinful. We, we've talked about that, right? But I also <laughs> want to deal with this reality. There are those of us who need a corrective word here. It's possible to be in a hard circumstance that's, that's where it's legitimate to feel sorry, and also be guilty of the sin of self-pity. That's a hard thing, right? So we want to talk about this biblically, but let's talk about why self-pity, and again, self-pity, turning our attention off of God, onto ourselves, feeling excessive sorrow for ourselves, pity for ourselves in our circumstances. That's the, what we're talking about here. And let's, let's just talk for a few minutes here about why it's sinful. Let me give you four reasons why self-pity is sinful. Number one, self-pity is idolatry, okay? It's idolatry. It ignores God and all the things we know about His character. Remember that the sin in self-pity is God's, but it is we assess ourselves and our circumstances as though God is not a gracious Father. And what does James tell us about God? He's a, he's a giver of all good things. All good things come from above. And so it, it's idolatry and it doesn't rightly understand God and his character. It's also idolatry in that it puts our, ourselves at the, the center of the story where, where God should be. We make the story of human existence about ourselves. You, you ever been uh, reading a, a story to a, a young child and there's, you know, it's illustrated. This, this happened a lot of times. Remember, we were reading uh, stories to our kids when they were younger. You start reading the story, maybe you're reading the story of the three little pigs or something. And, you're reading through the story, and you get to the part where the one little pig buys the straw, and your child points at the little raccoon that's selling the straw or something. He goes, who's that? What do they do? Why are they selling the straw? Where do they get the straw? And they just go on and on and on about the, and you're right, it doesn't matter. It's just a, let's just move on. No, but I want to know more. So sometimes we're like that, right? We're missing the, the main thread of the story. We're so fixated on, our, on ourselves that, that we miss the reality. This is not a story about us. It's a story about God. And, and we're supporting characters in it who bring praise and glory to God. And so self-pity is idolatry because it, has a, it maximizes us and minimizes God. So it's, it's sinful in that respect. Self-pity is also sinful because it's unbelief. You say, well, what are we not believing? Well, we're not believing passages like Romans 8.28 that, that tell us all things work together for good for those who love God or are called according to His purpose. 
As we engage in the, the sin of self-pity, we, we experience unbelief because we're not believing that God is, is not just good, but sovereign and in control. We, we think about Elijah. Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 19? He, he's just defeated the prophets of Baal and Jezebel, and he, he goes on this journey in the wilderness. He sits under a tree, and he, he says, I, I just want to die. I want to die. It's enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm, I'm no better than my father's. And the Lord ministers to him. He, he gives him what he needs. And then he goes to Horeb, and he comes to a cave. He lodged there, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, well, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Throw down your, they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword, and it's just me. I'm the only one left. That's unbelief. Self-pity is sinful because it's unbelief. It doesn't believe that God is sovereign, that he's good, that he has a plan. Self-pity is also sinful because it's, it's unloving, right? Self-pity is, is unloving. As we engage in self-pity, what are we doing? We're ignoring the needs of others. We are blind to the fact that others are going through terrible circumstances that, that we could minister to. It's also unloving because we often use self-pity to do what? to manipulate others, to get them to do what we want them to do for us. Self-pity is, is sinful because it's, it's unloving. Remember Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. What, what does Jonah pity and who does he not pity? Jonah pities a plant that dies but has and engages in self-pity and has no compassion for the, the people of Nineveh whose very souls are in danger. God says, Jonah, shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their, their right hand from their left in terms of morality, what's right and wrong? You know what's amazing to me? What's amazing to, and convicting to me What's convicting to me is that, that sometimes the people who are going, the most godly people who are going through some of the most difficult circumstances are the people who are most attuned to the needs of others. Isn't that a remarkable thing? I mean, literally, cir circumstances like this have happened to me before where I, I go and I visit someone who has terminal cancer. And we're talking, they said, oh, I heard that it rained on your vacation. I was so sorry to hear that. Like, are you, are you kidding me? That that's your focus right now? The, the small things I've gone through? But it seems to be something universally true of a, of a godly person, a person who has rightly recognized their need for a Savior and placed their faith in Jesus Christ and received forgiveness, that they are some of the most loving people focused on other people's needs. That is the exact opposite of self-pity, isn't it? Self-pity, another one more thing to think about why self-pity in and of itself is sinful. It's, it's, it's covetousness, right? It's coveting. As we engage in, in self-pity, it's, it's fueled by coveting other people, the things that they have, the life that they have that we don't. Remember in, in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab goes into his house. He's vexed and sullen. You can imagine him crossing his arms or sticking out his lip, and he's sullen because of Naboth. He lays down on his bed. He turns away his face. He won't eat any food. Self-pity is the opposite of thankfulness, isn't it? 
Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Those of us who have been forgiven of our sins, received in relationship with God, should be the most thankful of all people. Praise for God and his grace should be on our lips moment by moment of our lives, and a person who's engaging in self-pity is not engaging in thankfulness. That is the, the root of this sinful heart. Those of us who believe the gospel, who've been saved from our sins through the work of our great King, Jesus Christ, cannot engage in self-pity. It's the heart of folly to believe that our lives aren't fair, to believe that we deserve everyone to feel sorry for us. We have received grace beyond our ability to comprehend. Well, let's talk now about the fruit of self-pity. Okay, we're going to go through uh, these these kind of five episodes a little bit quickly. The focus here is that I want you to see the fruit of self pity in Saul's life. Now, I encourage you as we look through some of these things as we read through First Samuel. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter twenty five next week. You can if you get a, a good study Bible like the ESV study Bible, it does a great job showing you where some of these these places are. Basically, these places are all in the, the southern part of Israel. Uh, in between Philistia and the Dead Sea, Dead Sea on the east there, the Philistia on the west. And, and so that's, that's where these different events are, are taking place. But what I want you to see here in these, in these chapters is that this sin of self-pity that Saul engages in bears fruit. And, and self-pity is often the, the first bud of sin that's going to blossom into much more destructive sin. Self-pity becomes the foundation upon which we build other sins like anger and, and bitterness and, and hatred towards others, or it helps us excuse escapism into abuse of alcohol or, or pornography or, or, or other sins. We use the self-pity to justify and excuse this other sin, and if it's not dealt with, self-pity is going to lead us to other sins as our hearts are hardened. One person wrote this, self-pity is the stuff out of which depression, despair, murder, suicide, and other sins are made. So the ones I'm going to give you are just a, a few examples, and we could add others, but let's, let's just focus on what we see come out of Saul's heart, the actions that flow from this heart of self-pity, what he's able to justify. Number one, self-pity results, first of all, in destructive action results in destructive action. The chapter continues here. The, the sin of self-pity leads Saul in this murderous rage. Verse 11 through 16, Saul summons, he confronts Ahimelech, and Ahimelech is like, look, man, uh, he's trying to ba balance between defending himself and not setting Saul off. He says, look, what you're saying just, just isn't true. I how in the world would I have suspected David and that the things you're talking about, I have, I have no idea that he that that this was, was happening. But Saul wants none of it. Verse 13, why have you conspired against me? And then in verses 17 through 19, Saul says, tells his servants, kill Ahimelech, kill the rest of the priests here from Nob. And they refuse. And so he tells Doeg, you do it. And he does. He kills 85 priests. And then, as if that's not enough, he goes to Nob and kills everyone in the city of Nob. And remember, Saul was the guy who was unwilling to totally eradicate the Amalekites. But now, when it, and that's what something that God had told him to do, and God's glory was, stake, as, as it was at stake. But now that Saul's glory is at stake, he is incredibly willing to engage in this murderous rampage. 
The Amalekites represent a threat to the worship of God, but Nob represents an attack on his worship, and he's furious. They have crossed a line. If we are engaged in self-pity, you need, you need to know this. The fruit will not be productive actions, but destructive actions. Our spouse doesn't respond to us the way that we think she should. We've come home from a hard day at work, and we're laboring under this, 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 this self-pity as we think about all the things that have happened to us today at work and, and just how horrible our boss was and how horrible our colleague was. And we come home and, and our, our, our wife says something to us and, and, and we respond with a sharp word. That's, that's a destructive action. And then our, our wife responds with a destructive she, she responds with a, a harsh word. And now we respond with a how Don't you know? all about me and the terrible things that happened to me? Instead of understanding how hard my life is, someone responds with a sharp word, and, and I, now I'm going to make her pay relationally. And many of us are trapped in a cycle of destructive self-pity. Now, I'm not saying your marriage is easy. I'm not saying your parents are great. I'm not saying your job is just some wonderland that's a, f- a fun place to work. But what I am saying is this. Self-pity is not a constructive way to deal with hard circumstances. It is sinful and will lead to destruction. Self-pity results in destructive action. It also results in delusional thinking. Self-pity causes us to engage in delusional thinking. Look what happens next. Look at chapter 23. In chapter 23, and we've already seen this in his interaction with Nob and, and it, Ahimelech in the city of Nob, Saul continues to be unwilling to listen to reason and rightly view circumstances. So in verses 1 through 5, David rescues the city of Keilah. It's it's on the east of of Gath. It's near to where David is, and it's it's under siege by the Philistines. And so he goes and and he rescues them. And then verses 6 through 14, Saul knows that David is there. And if he's thinking rightly, what would Saul have thought? He would have thought, wow, David did what I should have done as the king. David just rescued a city. I just destroyed a city. And if Saul was thinking rightly about reality, he would have responded with repentance. But Saul is not thinking rationally. He's engaging in self-pity. Self-pity causes us to view the, the universe in a delusional way, thinking that we are at center instead of God. And instead, he thinks, God has given, him, God has given David into my hand. That's what he thinks in verse 7. And sadly, the Kilohites will turn David over to Saul. The world is not a fair place to David in this instance. But the person who's ensnared in self-pity or ensnared by self-pity will be delusional in their thoughts about God and as they fail to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, they will think that they're on the side of God. A worldview that has ourselves at the center ultimately won't make sense. As we engage in thinking that this, this delusional thinking that we are the center of the universe, we're going to continually be confronted with the reality that, huh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Delusionally, we think, I, I, I have it worse than others. 
the reality is, yeah, I have it hard, but life is hard. The, the delusional person says, I, I'm better than other people, and so I, I don't deserve the things that are happening to me. The rational person says, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm not all that great. <laughs> you know what delusional thought I have all the time that, that's a sign of, of, of self-pity? You know what? I, I hear myself saying this all the time. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you ever say that? I, I, I drop my phone. Are you kidding me? You know, spill a glass of water. Are you kidding me? Like, how in the world can all these things happen to me? You would think that I would realize, uh, Daniel, uh, the world is not about you, and the universe doesn't operate with you as its center. Everything you wanting to have happen, happen. But I've only been at this 45 years. Maybe eventually I'll, I'll pick up on that, right? But listen, brothers and sisters, if we remain steadfastly committed to self-pity, we'll have to do more and more outlandish things to get that narrative to make sense. We're going to ascribe motives to others that don't exist. We're going to interpret their actions in the worst possible light. They're talking about me behind my back. They're out to get me. We're going to engage in that thinking that is not biblical, is not true. Self-pity results in delusional thinking. Self-pity also results in idolatrous worship. Look at chapter 23 again. We see this, number three, self-pity results in idolatrous worship. Look at verses 15 through 29, and we, we see Saul continuing to pursue David, right? Now David's in the wilderness at Ziph, and uh, Jonathan and, and David renew their, their, uh, their covenant with one another, and in verse 18, and then the Ziphites, and these are, these are part of David's kinsmen, they go up to Saul at Gibeah, and they, and they tell Saul where David is. And listen to what David's, uh, listen to what Saul says. Sorry, let me first listen to what the Ziphites say in verse 20. They say, come down, O king, listen to this, according to all your heart's desire. This is what Saul desires. This is what he worships, to come down, and our part will be to surrender him to the king's hand. And then listen to this, this delusional thinking that's resulted in idolatrous worship in verse 21. Saul says this, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Saul worships himself, and he believes this idolatrous view that he has of God is that God exists for good things to happen to him even when he's walking in disobedience and destruction. Saul is just more straightforward with the path that many of us tread as we pursue this journey of self-pity, right? Worship's all about me. Good people are those who give me what I want. Bad people are those who don't give me what I want. Good people who give me what I want will be blessed by God for doing what I want them to do. It's idolatry. A fourth fruit of self-pity that we see in these chapters. Number four, self-pity results in erratic behavior. Erratic behavior. At 24 and 26 are very similar in what takes place. And in both chapters, uh, David comes upon Saul unaware. In chapter 24, he comes upon Saul unaware in a, a cave, and he has this opportunity to, to destroy Saul. Instead, he, he, he uh, is afraid to raise his hands against the Lord's anointed. He tears a piece of, cuts a piece of Saul's robe off and feels guilty about it later. 
Saul feels no such compunction. He goes from trying to kill David, and then in verse 16, as you realize what David's done in chapter 24, he's crying. He lifts up his voice and, and he weeps. He calls David his son, and, and he's more, he says, you're more righteous than I am in verse 17. You repay me with good, I, I repay with evil. His behavior is erratic. And that's a result of, of self-pity. Our actions are going to become more and more mercurial. Temperamental people make life hard for those who live with them, right? And if the people in your life are constantly worried by if what they do is going to to set you off. Am I going to make them upset? Am I going to cause life to to not be happy if I do this or if I don't do that? It's possible that you're engaging in the sin of self-pity and people are having to to walk that way because of of how you're responding to them, right? The last fruit of self-pity that I want you to think about is the how the the fruit of self-pity is an unrepentant attitude or unrepentant attitudes Chapter 26, as I said, it's very similar to chapter 24. We're going to turn there. Again, David comes upon Saul this time in an open place, and, and what's revealed is Saul comes to David again. There has not been true repentance. And again, in verse 9, uh, David refuses to kill Saul. And this is going to come up as we continue to go through First and Second Samuel, David's refusal to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, and how is this going to be rectified. But over and over again, over and over again, God has to intervene to protect David. And unless, as we look at Saul here in chapter 26, unless we repent of the sin of self-pity, this cycle of destruction, delusion, idolatry, erratic behavior, it's going to continue on and on and on. David responds to Saul again. Saul recognizes David's voice in verse 17, similar to what he said in verse, uh, sorry, in uh, chapter uh, 24. He says, is that your voice, my son David? It is my voice, my Lord, O King, David responds. And, and again, he calls Saul out, and Saul says in verse 21, I have sinned, return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. But nobody believes that. Saul doesn't really believe it. David certainly doesn't believe it. And as Saul continues down a path of, of sin, it's going to be very obvious. He didn't mean it. Brothers and sisters, that's the sin of self-pity. We turn our eyes off of God. We make the universe about ourselves. We turn our eyes on ourselves, and we feel this excessive Sorrow for ourselves, excessively sorry for ourselves. So you say, well, well Daniel, what do I do? How, how can I fight this in my, in my life? Because my, my circumstances are hard at times. What, what, what do I do instead? This feels like such a, an overwhelming thing. Well, let's look at what David does. David does the reverse of how we define self-pity. So in hard circumstances, he turns away from himself onto God, and instead of excessive sorrow, he feels hope. He hopes in the Lord. You can write down Psalm 52. That he, wrote, he writes that during the circumstances of chapter 22 with Doeg. But 
listen to Psalm 54. This is right after his fellow Judahites have, have told Saul where he is in, in these chapters that we just looked at. And listen to what David says. He says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give, give ear to the words of my mouth. So again, this is written right after he's been betrayed. His, his, he says, verse 4, Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. And what is David doing there? He's taking his eyes off of, the, off of himself and, and off of his, his circumstances and saying, okay, in these circumstances, my hope is not in myself. My hope is not in these circumstances turning out the way that I want them to turn out. My, I'm going to turn my eyes to the Lord. That's my hope. He's my helper. He's the one who upholds my life. He's the one who's determined how many days I live. He's the one who's determined what happens on each day that he's granted me, and he's the one who determines when that life comes to an end. And he is the one, verse 5 of Psalm 54, who will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Then verse 7, uh, verse 6, with a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give what? Instead of self-pity, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. So what can David say in that instance where he has just been betrayed? He can say, the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, is a good name. He is good and he does good even in this moment. Verse 7, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. We don't look at ourselves, we look to God, and instead of feeling hopeless and excessive sorrow, we feel hope. And then we see the fruit. My, uh, my dear friend, Jason Allegood, this, this last week, has, you know, he, he and his, his wife have been going through some hard things, a difficult journey as she's been diagnosed with, with uh, colon cancer. She had surgery this past Thursday and that went well. But Prior to the surgery, he wrote an article, kind of a, an update, and the title was A Strange Anniversary Gift. Just that title alone, describing a hard circumstance, what a, what a beautiful mixture of acknowledging the hardness of a circumstance while simultaneously recognizing that God is a good God who gives good things to those whom he loves, even when those things are hard. The fruit of looking to God, hoping in him, turning off of ourselves, is a reverse fruit of what we see with self-pity. Instead of destroying others, we're, we're, we're trying to, to build them up. We're recognizing our, our need to, to, to repay Good for evil. Remember First uh, Peter chapter two. This is uh, this is such a. You want to turn your eyes off of yourself onto God. If maybe you're struggling with self pity, let me just encourage you to meditate on this this passage over and over again. This this next week in First Peter chapter two, he he talks about the suffering that people are going through, and he he raises up Jesus as an example. He says when Jesus. He uh, suffered. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so here's, here's Jesus who suffers, and instead of feeling this, this self-pity, he, he, he loves, and he entrusts himself to God. And then, you keep reading, First Peter 3 he talks about what we do in our, our marriage relationships as sometimes we go through these hard times with, with people that we love. Brothers and sisters, let's wage war against self-pity through the enabling work of the Spirit given to us graciously and freely through, through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's wage war against self-pity in Christ so that we would not experience its terrible fruit in our lives for the life of this church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so kind to us. We pray that in your kindness, you would grant us the ability to, to see where self-pity has, has creeped into our soul. Help us to distinguish between sorrow and self-pity. Help us to, to lament and turn to you in our sorrow and, and hope and, re, and you and repent of self-pity. We thank you for how you have shown your goodness to us time and time and time again. We love you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.